You're listening to the Religion and Fiction Podcast. A podcast for people interested in the intersection of the sacred and story. Offering insight, inspiration, and a bit of entertainment for the journey. I'm your host, Jeremy Bauma, a former pastor and theologian who writes stories under J.A. Bauma. Stories that offer entertaining escape as well as insightful inspiration for the journey. This week's podcast is week four of the Religion and Fiction Book Club, diving into chapters 20 through 26 of A Reimagined Faith. And boy, do things really heat up for our intrepid hero, Peter Daniel Young. Stick around. Hey, Religious Fiction readers, this is episode 13 and week four of the Religion and Fiction Book Club. So sorry this is a day later than uh, anticipated and expected. That would be because we had a snow day yesterday because of all the ice and snow and crazy mixture of weather nonsense out in my neck of the West Michigan woods, which meant that my kids were home with me all day and made it pretty difficult to record this episode. So I thought that I would postpone it a day and give you the best experience possible, even though they still had a second snow day and now they are occupied outside somewhere i think i hope don't worry i'm sure all is well (laughs) at any rate uh we're getting to the next several chapters chapters 20 through 26 in a reimagined faith and i'm really excited that you have made it along with me this far in the book and have traversed Peter Daniel Young's journey along with me for the second time in my case as the author of the book. And it's been interesting to look back on the themes and the points of conflict both internally within Peter as well as relationally with other people and remember a lot of what I myself experienced 20 years ago when I was experiencing my own sort of crisis of faith. And that's what led to writing this book, because I wanted others to feel both a camaraderie with the main character, Peter, as he himself dealt with the deep questions of faith, life, and everything in between that his friends were asking and himself, while also giving people a glimpse into the internal spiritual life of people who are really wrestling with such questions and such doubts. And all of this really comes to a head in this week with these chapters in a number of different ways. But before we get to that, I wanted to step back and mention something that I thought about after recording last week's episode, week three. And it's something that I've thought about the other two weeks as I've gone back through these chapters and have sort of talked about what was happening in my mind as I was writing them, but also what is happening in the story. And one of the major themes, obviously, is wrestling and questioning. Uh, In some ways, doubting, but not so much that, but uh, seeking a better path forward for the Christian faith, personally and communally as uh, a church. But one of the things I wanted to point out is that even in the midst of this questioning and this sort of pushing back and, as the book title suggests, this reimagining of the faith, I want to 
make clear that this isn't a free-for-all, okay, of reimagining and questioning and doubting and pushing what has been off to the side in the interest of the new and shiny thing happening within culture and the church. I think that part of the problem with these discussions is that this tends to be the default. The present is tyrannical, as one person put it. The tyranny of the present, one theologian has framed a lot of the way these questions go, meaning the newest and latest doctrinal position has to be the default because, man, we're progressive, right? And of course, history marches forward as well as culture and cultural beliefs, which means that the church must also march forward into a new bright world of Better beliefs. Of course, this is the myth of progress, right? Because not everything new and progressive is always the best. I'll also grant the opposite position that everything traditional isn't always automatically the best. But I want to give a case in point uh, to illustrate before moving on. And that is one position within Christianity that has been and still is a solid foundational belief, uh, one of those poles of the tent that we talked about last week. And that is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, which Scripture teaches and the church has always believed. In fact, it's the foundation of its foundational creed. The Apostles' Creed, which insists that we believe that on the third day he rose again from the dead, which informs the last belief of this uh, creedal statement that we believe in the resurrection of the body and life everlasting. This is what Scripture teaches. This is what the church has always taught. And yet some in the past, in even the recent past, have sort of twisted the meaning of the resurrection to mean not a literal physical bodily one, but instead a spiritual one, meaning Jesus lived on in the memory of the disciples. Or an existential resurrection. Jesus lived on in the example of the disciples and their teachings and how they lived after his death, and consequently, how the church has lived after Jesus' death. But of course, this changes the meaning of the resurrection entirely because Scripture and the church has taught that Jesus physically, bodily, actually arose from the dead. And Paul insists that salvation stems from one's confession with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, but also belief in their heart that God raised him from the dead. That's how you are saved. So this idea that we can change the meaning of the resurrection, that we can reimagine the resurrection, if you will, uh, reimagine this very central part of the Christian faith is, of course, completely ridiculous and is something that I would never encourage anyone to do. Even in the midst of one's spiritual journey, asking questions and pushing back against uh, the sort of faith they've grown up with, the resurrection is pretty important. And without it, it's completely useless, as Paul later goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 15. So I'd like you to keep this in mind as we move forward through the study that Questioning and pushing back and exploring the deep questions of faith, life, and everything in between is necessary and admirable for everyone, whether you're a 20-something like I was 
20 years ago, or Peter Daniel Young is in the midst of his own 20-something struggle, or a 40- or 50-year-old somebody who wonders what is central to this thing called faith in Jesus. All of that is well and good, but I would encourage you to move beyond doubt and disbelief and questions into fully embracing a life of faith in Jesus Christ and specifically in community. Questions are good. Faith is better. And that's what we discover in this week in these chapters. Thanks for joining. Stick around. All right, enough of the prologue to this episode. Let's dive into the chapters. Chapters 20 through 26. And we're going to start with 20 and 21, where Peter finds himself in a very uncomfortable meeting with his ministry leaders. This actually reflects something that happened to me 20 years ago when I myself was brought into a meeting with the ministry that I was working for. Now, the circumstances were different than what Peter faced, but I think they still stemmed from a lot of what we find here in these two chapters, chapters 20 and 21, where Roger sits Peter down and flatly tells him that things have changed in Peter. Uh, Doctrinally, defensively, and defiantly is the, the three Ds that we sort of find in this chapter. And they all kind of revolve around Peter's shifts and his changes regarding his understanding of his faith and and really the direction of his faith. As I've shared, I myself experienced a very similar season 20 years ago in the midst of ministry. And while I wasn't open and honest uh, with them like Peter was in a lot of those wrestlings and those conflicts internally with the faith that he'd been given, I think a lot of people picked up on the changes that I myself were experiencing and undergoing. And the same sort of attitude that Peter had, this defensiveness and and some of the defiant uh, attitude that we find here is similar to what I myself uh, had when I was a 20-something young adult in ministry trying to find my way, but also, you know, pushing back against the way things had always been, both in a ministry sense, but also in a uh, doctrinal sense. Case in point was the everyday evangelism, which in my context was evangelism explosion, which made, as I mentioned earlier, heaven the point of the good news of Jesus, rather than a relationship and breaching the alienation and the gulf between me and God. And some of the people who were both above me and around me didn't quite take too kindly to my pushback, I don't think, but also didn't quite get what I was pushing back against. And I think the same confusion is evident in the tension between Peter and Roger. And at the front end, I want you to think about which characters in these two chapters specifically, 20 and 21, that you most identify with. I'm guessing if you yourself are wrestling, it's probably Peter. And if you're on the outside looking in on somebody who's doing the wrestling, it's probably Roger. And maybe Ainsley, who we see again in chapter 21, or Bernie. And 
each of them are approaching this uh, sort of problem of Peter's crisis of faith in different ways. Obviously, for Peter, he's feeling defensive because he feels like he has to defend himself, probably because he feels so misunderstood. I think you'd get some of that in this chapter with some of the finger pointing and finger wagging from his ministry co-workers. And I know during that season, I myself felt very misunderstood because I wasn't jettisoning the fundamentals of the Christian faith, if you will, uh, like the resurrection, as I spoke of earlier, uh, or the deity of Jesus or the necessity of rebirth, as Peter mentions in this chapter. All I wanted is what Peter wanted. And he says, I want a gospel that matters right here, right now, as much as it matters for down the road. And my students do too, Roger. That's why I'm reimagining for them as much as for me. I wonder if you've been Peter or if you are Peter, if you have experienced a similar sense of misunderstanding and mischaracterization of what it is that you are going through or have gone through. What is that like? What does that feel like? And have you been able to express that to other people? Now, on the flip side, if you are a sort of a Roger or an Ainsley or a Bernie or some of the others in his ministry, and you are looking on the outside in on somebody's sort of crisis of faith and the questions and the pushback. How have you handled that? Has it been hard to see that? Has it been confusing? Have you maybe made mistakes in trying to navigate that with somebody? I know, I think looking back, it was hard for those who were on the outside looking in to understand what it was that I was going through. And ultimately, they were responsible to the ministry, right? And as well to the people that I was shepherding. And so the same kind of action plan that Peter was put under mirrored very similarly one that I myself was put under, which was very scary and very uncomfortable. And it was also, for me at the time, something that I that was tragic uh, because I, like Peter, had no idea how I would change, especially the parts that were sinful, the uh, the pride and the arrogance and the defensiveness and defiance of my leaders. Uh, but also, it was embarrassing to have to go through that as a 20-something, to be disciplined in that sort of way. But, you know, looking back, I'm thankful for a couple things. I'm super thankful for the experience that the Lord put me through, that he shaped my character using uh, my ministry and this negative experience with being disciplined in this sort of way, but also recognizing it was a positive thing to shave off some of those rough edges to my character at a young age. But I was also super thankful for the Bernie in my own life who gave very similar words that he gave to Peter, which were rooted in Paul's words in Philippians chapter 2, in which we're reminded that not only are we called to work out our salvation, to do all we can to love God and love other people with fear and trembling, but we're also reminded that God works within us, that we're not alone. He's working on us to shape us into the person that he's called us to be, that he intended us to be when he created us. 
And here is what he says. He says, Peter, God is with you. He's working on you. He will help you want to love him and others. And he will help you do it. Again, I know. (laughs) And I'm Bernie there. I'm expressing the exact same sentiment that I know exactly what he's saying because I've been there. And if you're in the middle of that, like Peter was, having to change through this sort of act of discipline, but process of discipline, God is with you in the middle of that. Uh, As much as he's in the middle of your wrestling and your questioning. Of course, the other interesting thing I think that I see in this chapter, again, as an author looking back, is the tension we find here with respecting the past and tradition, but also sort of needing to go forward with our understanding of the faith, but also our own faith. Uh, Peter is sort of instructed to stop pursuing this line of questioning, uh, but especially with his students. And he can't do that. He realizes that there's sort of a point at which this is just where he's at. This is where his journey is taking him. And he needs to keep walking down that road wherever it takes him, even if it means bringing others along with him. And in the middle of ministry, that would be his students. And I think that's an interesting tension to hold on to, right, in a couple of ways, both respecting the past and tradition as we've been talking about, but also looking forward uh, on the one hand, but also on the other, realizing that we have a responsibility to those around us, uh, but also ourselves if we're heading in a particular direction and if we are becoming convicted and convinced about uh, what the Bible says about one thing or another, or what God cares about in this world, or what the church has taught about. This really comes to a head in the trip that Peter takes home for his Christmas break in chapters I think it's 22 through 24. It begins with sort of the car ride, and he's hearing about what's going on in his family. And and then he wakes up one of the days and starts back in on Pastor Jack's story. And he gets to the part where the the pastor is sort of bemoaning this tension that we've been talking about, right? Recognizing that Jesus is taking us in one direction, but around us, people don't want to be disturbed. They don't want their faith messed with. Instead, they want nothing more than caretakers, as Pastor Jack said, and that Peter totally acknowledged and agreed with. Uh, Something I have found myself in my own ministry work. And there's this line here that I want to read that comes from a ministry colleague from early in my ministry career, Pastor John Fry. And he had this line that I loved and I've used in a few different places, which he himself got from somewhere else. So I'm not exactly sure who it's attributed to originally, but this is the line. When Jesus came, he blew everything to pieces. And when I saw where the pieces landed, I knew I was free. Ain't that the truth, as the book continues, Pastor Jack's book. From my faith to my ministry, and even to my family, 
All of it had been affected by the fallout and shrapnel of what I firmly believed was Jesus not merely coming into my life and faith to caretake, but overhaul. And of course, there was a big kaboom in Pastor Jack's life, as well as Peter's, with these questions and sort of this crisis of faith. And that's what happened to me 20 years ago. And I've had some similar moments, kaboom moments, milestones, if you will, in my own journey. Uh, the last couple of years, I've had my own uh, kaboom moments. And I wonder what that has been for you, uh, what that is now for you, where Jesus came in, blew everything to pieces, and when you saw where those pieces landed, you knew that you were free. Where do you see Christ blowing things up in your life? Uh, perhaps even in the church. In the last episode, I shared my exploration in this understanding of the unseen realm, which is a term, I don't know if it was coined by this uh, Bible teacher, uh, but he's used it often. Michael S. Heiser in his ministry work and theological work. It's also the title of one of his major books. Uh, interestingly and sadly, he passed away a few days ago. And that man and his book and his work has had the most singular impact in my spiritual journey, my understanding of scripture, and my own ministry work in what I write. But you know, it's also pretty controversial for some circles in the church because one of the things he points to and highlights within scripture itself and biblical theology is this notion of the sons of God, that there are other spiritual beings uh, outside and underneath, not adjacent to, but underneath the Most High God, Yahweh, that have impact and influence in the world. We're talking about this divine council that is part of the way things are run in heaven and how the decrees of the Lord unfold on earth. And even beneath that are the demonic spiritual beings that have sway and power in our world uh, because of the sovereign, providential, permissive will of the Lord, the Most High God, Yahweh. Uh, but that idea is, first of all, something that I that was foreign to me and took me a while to understand and get to entirely. But, you know, as I've read through the Bible, I'm reading through the Bible again this year, and I cannot help but see how there is this assumption of other gods, other spiritual beings in the Old Testament. And that is an idea that has shaped my understanding of the work of God in the world and the stakes of the work of God, the work of Christ in the church in the world, because if there are these other spiritual beings at work in the world, then how do we confront them with the full power and authority of Christ given to the church to advance the reign and rule of Christ on earth as it is in heaven, as his prayer, the Lord's prayer indicates? For me, that has been one of those kaboom moments the last couple of years. 
Hannah, I wonder about yourself. What have you learned or what has been taught to you that you see, yeah, that's that's right, which means that the way I understood things in the past and before and what others have said isn't entirely right. How has that impacted yourself, but also your relationships, those around you looking in on how you're changing and where you're going? Of course, any change we make in any part of our life inevitably draws attention from our family, specifically our parents. And I think that faith is one of those big ones that is almost hard to escape when it comes to the scrutiny as well as the questions that are that we draw to ourselves when we begin thinking differently or changing in our spiritual journey and and our faith. Of course, chapter 24 is one of those big ones, and even 25 with the revelations of Logan and his own parents and how they approached the questions of Logan's youth pastor. And here we find the way that Peter's parents approach and push back against the questions and the direction that Peter is going with his faith. Now, without rehashing everything that happens in these chapters, I'd like you to kind of step back and consider your own familial relationship with faith, especially your parents and their faith and sort of what has been handed to you from childhood and even into your adulthood. Uh, What was that like growing up in your family when it came to issues of faith? Perhaps you really didn't have a church experience or faith wasn't a part of your childhood and you came to faith later and your parents didn't quite understand what on earth was going on in your life, this whole Jesus stuff and Christian and church stuff. How similar or different is your faith now and the direction of your faith and spiritual journey than what it was growing up and how similar or different to what you've been handed from your parents and from your family. I'll tell you that this chapter mirrored in many ways uh, what was going on between my parents and myself 20 years ago. Hi, Mom. Hi, Dad. (laughs) Uh, If you're listening, uh, on the one hand, I totally appreciate it how they handled my questions, and I know they came from out of left field. On the other, I really appreciate how they gave me space to explore them. And and looking back and even reading this chapter again, I can sympathize and empathize with what it was they were thinking and the confusion that led to some of these similar emotional responses to my direction. And here we have Peter's direction and some of that same emotional reaction and response. And I wonder how you navigated that for yourself or maybe how you are navigating that right now. How have people looking in, especially your parents, handled your own spiritual journey? One of the things that was striking to me when I was, again, reading this was recognizing that both sides really were sort of prideful and a bit defensive over their own particular faith postures and positions. And, and I think what I came away from and what I saw here was that 
I, both sides, whether it was Peter's parents or Peter himself, felt threatened by the other and what they were saying and what they were calling out and how they were responding to both positions. That threat, I think, is common and also unfortunate because it oftentimes drives a wedge between parents and their kids. Of course, Maggie says that won't happen. Of course, it's not going to come between us where Peter is now and where he might be heading. But of course, that's not guaranteed. And the next book will give you some more insight into that developing relationship and tension. But for now, I want that to be a springboard for you to consider how your own questions have come between people who are important to you. Have those questions and the pushback you've given, have they impacted your relationship with your parents in particular, but more broadly with those in your family? And again, if you're maybe a parent looking at a child who is wondering and questioning and even doubting and disbelieving, how has that come between you and them? How might it look for you to wrestle along with them and to sit with them, but also to repair the breach that has come between you and them? Of course, Peter isn't the only one who is experiencing a bout of wrestling even during the Christmas break, we discover that Clint had a very similar experience, and he's still simmering from it. And this leads to this interesting interaction between the two, Peter and Clint, about the importance of moving past doubt and disbelief and instead embracing the journey of believing differently, which leads to an interesting reveal about Logan. Along the way, he has been very uh, sort of uh, belligerent would be one word, but a bit cantankerous about his own surety about his faith and his beliefs. And he's pushed back heavily against some of what Peter has said, but especially Clint. And we discover why. And that's because his own parents had a forceful reaction to his youth pastor when he began voicing similar questions. And when he did, his parents, Logan's parents, said that this guy was a sorry excuse for a pastor and a sorry excuse for a Christian. And while Logan had never been one to doubt or question his faith, he resolved then and there, after listening in on this conversation up in the the rafters of the the church as a teenager, he resolved that there was no way in hell I'd go down that road. That road of questioning, right? That road of pushing back and uh, prodding and poking the faith that he'd grown up with. You can understand why, right? I mean, he didn't want to disappoint his parents, and he saw how they responded to this other guy after pushing back and questioning. And I have to imagine that it led to this sort of subconscious aversion to doing the same, especially when others around him, like Clint and Peter, were going down the same road. But... Peter kind of steps back and he has some advice by opening up Matthew 28 and pointing both of them to 
sort of the final episode that Jesus has, or one of the final episodes before he returns to the right hand of God in his exaltation and ascension, he reads from that moment when he met the disciples after his resurrection and he met them on the mountainside. And interestingly, even after all they had witnessed the miracles and his teaching and his crucifixion, but also the resurrection uh, appearing to them in the room, the, the house he was, they were hiding in, Jesus sent them out to go meet him at this mountainside. And when they were there, they worshiped him, but some doubted as the gospel of Matthew writes. Now, that's interesting that some still doubted. And Peter makes the case that even after all of that, what does Jesus do? Does he condemn them for doubting, ridicule them? Does he even address it? Sort of, as Peter says here in the book. To both the solid believers and the wavering believers, he gives what's been called the Great Commission. He sends them on mission to continue his mission of rescue and recreation. Amazingly, their weakness of faith didn't disqualify them. He took these doubting worshipers and continued to work with them on the path of their spiritual journey. And he goes on a little bit more, and he closes his Bible, and he says this. So here's what I challenge you both with. Don't give up. No matter where you're at in your spiritual walk, don't stop and lay down. Don't head back to where you've been even if the only way you can move forward is on all fours crawling like a dog. And the guys laugh, and, and then Peter continues. He says, do what Paul did. Press on toward the goal of winning the prize. You know what the prize is? These words at the resurrection. Well done, my good and faithful servant. And you know what else? Jesus is with you every step of the way. I wonder what that does inside of you to know that Jesus used doubting disciples to advance his beautiful mission of rescue and recreation. What does that mean to you that even the early disciples still doubted? And then the book of Acts goes on to say that he continued to give them many convincing proofs that he was alive. So it wasn't even enough that there he was, and he's like, have dinner with me and touch me and let's have a conversation. No, he continues to offer even more proofs that, yeah, he is alive. He was literally bodily, physically raised from the dead by God the Father. He took those people and he blew apart the world, totally transformed the world. And he's continuing to do the exact same thing through his church, even as broken and in some cases disbelieving as people like you and me. Now, that's an amazing idea. And Peter is so blown away that he is that person, that the Lord just used him to minister to these two struggling college students. He's on a high. He says, Lord, this is exactly what I've been made to do. And then it all comes crashing down. <laughs> As you know, in chapter 26, Peter loses his job, and he doesn't know what on earth he's going to do on the other side of ministry. 
this was in no small ways connected to his journey of exploration, discovery, and in many ways, transformation. And what was the result? Loss. Have you been there? Do you get what Peter is going through? Losing on the other side of this journey of exploration and questioning and pushing back? I do, because that chapter reflects exactly what happened to me 20 years ago. Now, I don't say that or even write this chapter to play the what was me card or to bring a spotlight into my own situation at the time. And I'm actually very thankful for what unfolded. I think there are a couple of perspectives on the chapter as well as my own chapter (laughs) that it was handled in a way that was not the best, but it was also a very good thing for me and my own spiritual development and Christian life. Now, while it wasn't directly connected in this way to Peter's shifts in his beliefs or my own beliefs, I think that a lot of what I was experiencing and questioning during a few-year period there led to my own axing from ministry. So I get exactly what Peter went through because I not only wrote it, but also walked it. And I wonder if others listening or reading the story get it as well, because you yourself have lived it. If so, what was that like? And what happened on the other side? As we see in the next chapters for our final week of the book club, we see that Peter's life isn't over, even though his ministry is over. God continues to work in him and through him, and that's the remarkable beauty of the grace and mercy of Christ along the way in our spiritual journeys, even when we are struggling with belief, asking questions, and trying our darndest to make sense of who God is and our life with him. The fallout didn't end my journey, it didn't end Peter's journey, and it certainly won't end yours either. Thanks again for listening to the Religion and Fiction podcast and for engaging in the Religion and Fiction book club. We'd love to hear your thoughts in the comments down below about our book selection, A Reimagined Faith. And don't forget to sign up to the newsletter to receive insights on the intersection of the sacred and story. Next week, we wrap up our second book club with the final chapters of A Reimagined Faith. In the meantime, happy reading!